Do Not Look at the Sunset Written by Pinky Dexterity Driving kids to school is my job. It's quite a simple job, and I do enjoy it very much. As a school bus driver, I am very well aware of the responsibility and the precautions that I have to take in order to bring those children safely back to their homes. I've been doing this job for almost 30 years. Some of these students that rode with my bus have become parents themselves and now I also fetch their children. It's a long story, but my wife and I never had a child. Despite that, I never felt lonely or incomplete since those children that I drove off to school had filled that gap and they became my happiness. I've had some favorites, but I was like a parent to each one of them. It brings me joy whenever I see them become successful or perform great in school. Of course, there were some silly children as well, but I always made sure to lead them to the right path to become a good person someday. Being the school bus driver of the only school in our community, most people knew me. If you even ask my name around, most will say I'm everyone's grandpa. I am liked by everyone, simply because I am good with kids and I can pretty much befriend anybody. It is why most parents have no problem seeing me spending time with their children. You see, every Friday, these school hours are early by an hour or so, and I have the time to spend with the kids in my bus. We use this time to play together, but as a rule, no one should ever leave the bus. This is to ensure that I can pay attention to everyone, and also to make sure that no one gets lost. I would bring board games, playing cards, and the such, just to keep the kids entertained. I would drive up to this hill for the view where the grass is blanketed by dandelions and pine trees that are towering over the surroundings. It would take 10 minutes to go there, and another 10 to go back, so we always had about 40 minutes of playing. The kids always wanted to stay longer, but I made it clear to them that if I failed to take them back home in time, their parents might not allow us to play again together. One day, I decided to go somewhere new. There was this abandoned playground that I found in the middle of nowhere. I found the place when I was venturing the forest to find some wild black-eyed Susan that I used for making a medicinal tea. It was strange because I was born in this town, and I've explored most of the forest in the area. There was no way I could have missed that playground. 
The slides and monkey bars were covered with rust, and the whole place was concealed by shrubs. What's also unusual is that the playground is far from a civilization. It would take a 15 minute drive and another 5 minutes on foot to get there. So, I can't think of any logical reason of why would there be a playground in such an isolated place. And despite that, I was really excited to show the kids at the playground. The next morning, I loaded a few pails of paint, planks of wood, and some tools on my truck to restore the playground. It took me almost a month to fix and decorate everything. I also made a new path that leads directly to the roadway and a parking space for the bus. After a few touch-ups, I was finally ready to show the playground to the kids. Friday afternoon has come, and I was so excited to bring the children to our new playground. The kids were unsuspecting that we weren't driving up to the hill that we always used to play, until the kid that sat in the front asked me, Mr. Frederick, why are we not going up to the hill? Are we not going to play again today? Anna asked. Uh, no, Anna. We're going to play somewhere new, I replied. Her eyes were glittering as I said that there was a new place for us to play. After roughly 15 minutes, I parked the bus and told everybody that we were going to play outside. Okay, okay, everybody, listen now. I'm letting you guys play in this new place that I found but promise me to never get out of my sight, or else we're all going to go back inside the bus. We promise, Mr. Frederick. The children replied in unison. The kids were thrilled since we have never played outside of the bus. I tasked Joey, the biggest kid on the bus, to be on the back, so that he could make sure that everyone is not leaving the line. I was in the front, leading the children to the playground, when I noticed that the path was getting narrower. Are we lost, Mr. Frederick? Tim asked. I hope not. Don't worry, Tim. We're almost there. I reassured. After roughly five minutes, we reached the playground. And I was just as excited as everyone else. I ran like a child chasing an ice cream truck. Hell, it was the fastest I've seen myself run in 20 years. Although, we do have a playground in the park. The kids loved our playground more than anything else. The sight of the kids being so happy also brought indescribable joy to me. Everyone was enjoying the playground until I told them it was a time to go home. Hey, I'm so sorry to tell you guys, but we have to go home now. Now don't worry, there are no classes tomorrow, so 
we can just come back here. Our meeting place will be on the Central Park at 10 a.m. Please, just five more minutes, Mr. Frederick. The children begged. I let the kids play for a few more minutes, since it was their first time on the playground. We were already ten minutes late on schedule, so I hurried up on the way home. I drove faster than usual, so that we would all be home in time, and their parents wouldn't be worried. Look at the sunset, Mr. Frederick. It's so beautiful. Anna exclaimed. I turned my neck to the right and I witnessed the sunset. Indeed, it was stunning. Shades of pink and magenta were complemented by the warm colors of red and orange from the setting sun. I had no recollection of what happened later that day. The next morning, I quickly went downstairs for breakfast so I could get the bus from school and fetch the kids from our meeting place. Why are you in such a hurry? My wife had asked. Oh, I promised the kids that we'll go play today in that new playground that I had found. Oh, is that so? She replied in a worried tone. Um, yeah. I haven't asked their parents' permission yet, but I'm sure it'll be fine for them. I was about to get the bus keys, only to find out that it was missing from the bowl I had always put it in. It was strange since I had never misplaced the keys. I didn't have enough time to look for it, so... I just used these spare keys and quickly headed to the school. I drove to the park and had all the kids aboard the bus. Everyone was so excited to go back to the playground. As soon as we had reached there, the kids ran so carelessly just to play already. We played for hours and hours until... It was about sunset again. I was sitting on the bench, and Anna sat beside me. Look at the sunset, Mr. Frederick. It's so beautiful. Upon hearing what she said, everything went silent. The laughter of the children slowly faded. I turned my head again to Anna but she wasn't there anymore. All the kids were completely missing. I was looking everywhere, but I couldn't find them. It was as if they just vanished into thin air. At that point, I was already crying, panicking. The crash wasn't your fault, honey. I instantly turned behind me and saw my crying wife. What? What crash? What do you mean? The investigators said you were distracted, which caused the school bus to rush into the cliff and roll down. All the kids died, but somehow, you survived.
the school fired you and confiscated the bus keys, which is why you couldn't find them. The parents were so furious that they wanted you to be jailed. However, they soon realized that it was purely an accident. At this point, I felt the guilt and grief rushing through myself. I couldn't process the whole ordeal. But how come I can't remember anything? I asked. You've suffered from brain damage, which caused your anterograde amnesia. Your brain cannot create new memories, and now you're stuck in the past. Every time I tell you the truth, you always try to kill yourself out of guilt. It's why I refrain from telling you about the accident. Every single day, you come back to this playground to play with the children, but they were just a figment of your imagination. Perhaps it was because of extreme guilt and frustration that your mind created a positive imagination for you. But, but the bus, it seemed fine. There wasn't even a single scratch. I stammered. I had to make you believe that everything seemed fine. I used our life savings to buy a bus, so that I could recreate the exact same moment every day. Why are you telling me all of this right now? This is the 857th time you visited this playground. I follow you here every single time to make sure you'll go home safely. But I just couldn't resist to see you in pain anymore. It wasn't your fault, John. I hugged my wife. And we both sat down on the bench. The sun was already about to set. I'm fine now, Linda. Let's go home. We headed back to the bus and drove home. A few minutes later, I saw the cliff where the bus proudly crashed. Look at the sunset, hon. It's so beautiful. My wife uttered. I looked directly onto the horizon to admire the beauty of the sunset. Indeed, it was purely magnificent. Shades of pink and magenta were complemented by the warm colors of red and orange. A few moments later, I found myself waking up from my bed. I couldn't remember what had happened later that day. I called out to my wife to ask what she wants for breakfast, but she wasn't home. Perhaps she woke up early for a morning walk. Well, I should be going now. The children are waiting for me at the park. In Russia, there is a place called Dead Mountain where nine hikers disappeared. Here's what happened. Written by 
Drake Blood, 2002. Before I begin, I must make a few things clear. First, would be this is not my story. This story is one of my relatives who had grown up during the Cold War. A cousin had told me the story that their grandfather had told them. With how old this story is, I am unsure of what was fact and what was fiction. But I will tell it as I was told, and give a picture that can clarify that this story isn't completely BS. Second, this story may sound crazy, but my cousin had believed every word their great-grandfather had said, so I'll take their word for it. In the year of 1959, my cousin's great-grandfather had been a young man in Soviet Russia. I will refer to him by his original name, Victor Dmitri. He had been a hiker and was known by his family as a lover of nature. At the time, he had a certain hiking license and was preparing to gain an upgrade to his license that was the highest at the time. Someone at the time in the town he lived in had been assembling a crew that would undergo a venture into the wilderness and claim the advancement in licensing. Victor had joined a group of 12 hikers that would venture up into the mountains. The trail they took had led them to an area called Dead Mountain in the local dialect. It was named this by the locals because there was little to no wildlife in the area, as well as a little plant life. I would guess this would make a good place to hike because you were unlikely to get attacked by animals like wolves or bears. To make this clear, I know little to nothing about hiking. My cousin also likes hiking and he knows a lot more than I do. When he had told me this story, he tried to explain a lot of things that I didn't understand. One thing that I do know though, is some of the equipment that Victor had brought was important for what was to come. Normal stuff like food and other essentials, but then there was an ice climbing pick and his knife. While that sounds relatively normal, the tool would be useful later on for Victor. On the way up, one member of the crew had started having trouble. He was having joint and knee problems while on the move to the campsite. Victor spoke up. You should probably go back down the mountain. What? I can't just leave now. I think you should. Your leg could be messed up and if you go too far up, you may not get back down. Victor was blunt with his words, but I could see that he was really just looking out for his friend. I am also paraphrasing what was said, because my cousin was both not there and his Russian is a bit rusty. I just can't bail on you guys. We've been training for this and I can't give up now. The leader of the party chimed in. Look, none of us want you straining yourself to the point that you can't return home. It'll be pretty hard to carry your butt back down. Just head back down the mountain and I'll help you out with your certificate some other time. Just head back down and get yourself patched up. The party member gave an over-exaggerated sigh before turning around and speaking. All right, all right. I'll head back to town. Good luck. Hopefully they don't have to cut off your leg. Yeah, hopefully. 
Try to keep yourself out of danger without me, Vic. I won't be up there to save your butt like last time. Alright, that's not how I remember it. But I'll see you when we get back. The party member had left the group alone and had ventured back down the mountain. I don't know if fate had smiled on that man, or if his body just had a really good timing for aches and pains, but considering what happened, he was probably pretty thankful he had a messed up leg. Sometime after the man had departed, the group had made their way to a certain pass on Dead Mountain. The group set up their camp and had begun to party. Most, if not all, of the group were in college, so from Victor's own admission, they had celebrated the trip so far. They partied for a few hours with a bit of liquor involved, and this was where they made a fatal mistake. The noise that they had made was something they should have kept to the minimum. The noise rang out through the mountains, but it wasn't anything you would expect. Nothing natural. Victor was staying in a group tent with a few of the other hikers when they had heard screaming. Victor shot awake, and he put on some clothing and his boots over his pajamas, before trying to see what had happened. The other hikers had gradually started to wake as they had heard something that Victor stated that he would never forget, and what my cousin said had seemingly haunted him in his later years. The sound had sounded like a roar or a howl that you would expect from a demon. Loud, booming, monstrous. Everyone had shuddered and looked back towards each other. They hesitated going outside, while Victor had crawled forward to see what had happened. From what I was told, Victor was always described as adventurous and brave. And for what I had heard from what happened in the story, this man had balls of steel. Victor had started to unzip the tent before hearing the sounds of snow crunching outside of the tent. He hesitated before unzipping the tent completely. His hesitation probably gave a few more seconds for himself and his group, but seemingly dooming another soul. One of the other campers had burst into the half-unzipped tent, head and arm first. He was panicking and trying to get inside frantically. Victor had tried to grab him and help him inside, before the man had suddenly been jerked back and then pulled from the tent. A few seconds after the man had been pulled away from the tent, a large claw reached into the tent. Victor had fallen backwards after the man was dragged out, so he was out of the way of the claw reaching in. The claw had a black, muddy appearance with white fur that followed the claw from the forearm. Victor crawled away further out of the claw's reach, Victor had stated to my cousin that when he saw the claw, he had been more afraid of what he had seen next than anything in his entire life. The scariest thing to him at that point was the thought of the potential conflict between the U.S. and the Union, the potential war that could happen, the stories that his parents had told him about, his own father from his stories from the last great war. Those doom days thoughts had scared the heck out of him before but they felt like nothing compared to this situation. The claw retracted from the entrance and through the zipper. An icy blue eye stared through. Mid snarled and a gigantic snout came through the entrance, and it started to wail around, trying to enter the tent. Virgil was still within striking distance of the snout and had to kick the snout full force. 
which had knocked it out of the tent for a second before it returned, even more rapid and vengeful than before. Victor had gotten back to his feet and got to his bag right by the other members of the group. They were all cowering in fear on the other side of the tent. The zipper on the other side of the tent had stuck and it wasn't opening. Victor pushed through the group and grabbed his bag and fumbled for the knife. The group kept rushing him to find the knife and cut open the other side of the tent. As the creature had started to pull itself through the zipper... He found the knife and had cut a hole in the tent wall and everyone had crawled through the hole. Victor held the hole open for everyone and had seen the creature nearly completely inside the tent. The beast was covered in white and gray fur. It looked very much like a wolf, but the body was much more muscular than a normal wolf and it was seemed a hell of a lot bigger than a normal wolf. Victor froze for a second before grabbing his coat, his bag, and going outside of the tent. Once outside, a snowstorm had formed in the hours after they had set up camp. Night had fallen and the storm had started to become a whiteout. From Victor's retelling, he claimed that he couldn't see his own hands or arms in front of him, as he had adjusted his coat and bag. The beast had tried to rip out of the tent and eventually tried to give chase to the group. Here's where the story gets a little disorienting. In the confusion... All the hikers had run off in different directions, trying to get away from the attacker. Since most of the people were asleep when the attack had started, they were lightly dressed and everyone other than Victor hadn't had a complete pair of shoes. Victor's retelling didn't mention much about the fate of most of the other hikers. I tried to look up as much as I could to figure out what had happened. I found a video on YouTube that went over the situation. Some of the hikers that had diverted from the camp tried to warm themselves up with a fire. But not having clothes, they accidentally scorched their feet and hands before dying due to hypothermia. Some of the people had died to what had seemed to be high-impact wounds, which could be caused by the collapse of a shelter that they had built. Victor had ran away from the camp and had ended up separated from all the other hikers. He kept running as fast as he could, trying to avoid the beast that he thought was right on his tail. Eventually, he had seen a small group of trees and had climbed up the tallest one that he could see. He had broken a few branches on the way up, but he was pretty sure wolves couldn't climb trees. He sat up in the tree for what seemed like hours, hoping that the beast wouldn't find him. He initially tried to stay awake as long as he could, because I thought the cold would get to him in his sleep and he wouldn't wake up again. He stayed up for about an hour before succumbing to sleep. Before he did drift off, he tied a rope from his bag around himself in the tree trunk so that he wouldn't fall and break his neck. Victor eventually woke up to daylight beaming between his hood and scarf. He looked over the area and saw that the weather had settled. He looked around for the beast that he saw, but he couldn't find it. Victor started climbing down to the bottom so he could try to find the rest of his team. His plan was to return to the camp and try to scrounge up as much equipment to try to save as much of his team as he could. On the way up, Victor had tripped on something and fell. He had expected that he had tripped on a loose branch or a groove in the ice while hiking, and had started to fumble around in the snow trying to find what he had tripped on. 
It took only a few seconds of searching before finding a gloved hand. Victor had realized that he hadn't tripped on a branch. He had tripped on a person. He uncovered a bit more of the snow and discovered the body of the expedition leader. The man had bite marks across his body, while having a frozen look of fear on his face. His eyes had been looking onward with a deathly gaze, one that had been burned into Victor's mind. Out of all the things on that mountain that he had seen, this image was etched into his skull. Sure, the beast had scared him and had terrified him for years, but this visage was something that would haunt him until the day that he died. Another scary thing was that the body had relatively no damage. There were bites and cuts, but there wasn't too many wounds that could be considered fatal except for one. A large hole that had been where his heart should have been. Other than that, his body was in relatively good condition. The beast hadn't killed him for food. The beast had killed him seemingly slowly and torturously. It killed him for its own enjoyment, and when it had had its fun, it killed him and left him in the cold. Victor had reburied the leader in the snow. He buried him deep enough that he could potentially be found later but deep enough so scavengers couldn't pick anything off of him. He continued up the mountain, making his way back to camp. He eventually did make his way back, and he looked around the camp and had seen the destruction. Two of the three tents had been torn down while one was somehow still standing. There were various footprints, but all of them looked human, except one trail that looked very wolf-like, except the prints were massive. Victor described it as he could probably fit his whole head in the print, and there would still be room for it. He had explored around the camp a bit more, finding different supplies scattered around the camp, before he found a bloodstain on the ground. The blood was slightly illuminate, and as he put his hand towards it, he felt a somewhat warm sensation. This interested Victor a slight bit, but he also found his ice-climbing pick. The pick had some of the blood on it as well, as a small chunk of flesh and fur in the ground. Victor had been excited to see this. He thought, well, it can bleed. The beast is mortal. Victor had grabbed the pick and had noticed the blood on the blade had also emitted heat as well. While Victor had still been afraid of the beast, this knowledge was something that made him hopeful. He realized that if the beast was still hunting him, he could drive it away and maybe even kill it. He realized that he was getting ahead of himself and knew that he had to take things one step at a time. He had to find a way off the mountain. He had realized an erratic pattern of footsteps by the bloodstained snow. It had started leading away from the camp and had the larger footsteps hadn't followed it. Victor thought that maybe the beast had been disoriented from being struck and whoever had stabbed it had slipped away. He made a mental note that the blood trail in the snow, and he continued to search the camp. Victor spent a couple of hours salvaging as much as he could, including a medical kit before he had went back to find the blood trail from the hike towards the camp. He retraced his steps before finding the bloodstains, and he had seen two trails. The first was a lighter trail of blood, that had looked like normal red blood had led away from the original campsite. The second trail was a darker shade of red, and initially followed the other trail, 
before turning and heading into the direction of where the expedition leader had been. The blood seemed to belong to the beast and it shown that he had attacked someone who was armed before being injured. After being attacked, it was out for blood, but saw the expedition leader and had taken the chance for some easy prey. This beast was not only smart, but malicious. Victor decided to follow the trail that was more human instead of the trail of the beast. He followed the trail into a small opening in the stone wall of the mountain. The gap was big enough for Victor to squeeze through. He saw some blood on the stone and thought that the other survivor was hiding inside. Victor started to slip through and spent a few minutes sliding into the cave. He made it inside of the cave and had decided to light a match that he had in his pocket. The match illuminated the room and he saw an object coming at him. Victor stepped backwards and dropped the match, which illuminated the room as he saw the survivor. She had been cut up with a tourniquet on her leg. She had relatively no clothing except a lighter layer of clothing that was without shoes. Her stance was shaky and her skin was pale. Victor held out his hand to block any more attacks before she had stopped and stared him down, a metal shovel in hand. It's me, it's me, Victor. I'm human. The woman stared for a second before she dropped the shovel. She burst into tears and hugged Victor. Victor had recognized her as one of his classmates, Alexandra. She had been friends of Victor, but she was more friendly with another member of the group. I'm so sorry. I thought, I thought that thing had, I thought it had found a way into the cave. I'm sorry, but we should be safe here. Victor had let Alexandra go before he had started to light the cave. He had given her some clothing that he had found at the camp and some of the food. My cousin always exaggerates what happened in the cave at the time, so I'm not going to get too far into it. From what was consistent, for however much time had passed between the initial attack to when the eventual rescue would arrive, Victor would occasionally go out to try to find the other hikers or what was ever left of them. Most of the time, the ventures were during the day, unless the two had gotten desperate. But the last encounter had scarred Victor. Victor had been outside trying to find one of the other hikers. He hadn't noticed that the sun was going down and the light was fading. Victor was too fixed on searching that he had wandered a bit too far off his intended trail before he had noticed the fading light and the rising darkness. Victor had started to run back to the cave before he had noticed it. The beast had stood on the purge, staring toward Victor with its cold, dead eyes. Victor's heart sank before he had burst into a full-on sprint and ran faster and faster towards the cave. He was about 20 yards from the gap when he quickly fell over as the beast had gripped his leg. He looked over and the beast had let go of his leg and it gave him a smile. A toothy grin that no one creature, human nor canine, could make. Victor tried to reach for the climbing pick that he had before realizing that his bag had fallen off. The beast had started to attack him and it was cutting him up. Victor had initially tried to resist before reclining himself to his fate. But suddenly, the beast had stopped attacking. Victor looked. Alexandra had grabbed the climbing pick and had stabbed the beast. 
The beast was still stunned as Alexandra pulled Victor back into the cave. As they slipped through the gap, the beast tried to poke his head into the cave and it gripped Victor's boot. The beast tried to pull it back but Victor's boot slipped off and sent Victor and Alexandra falling back into the cave. Victor stood back up into the cave and saw the beast looking inside, growling at the two while showing one of its icy blue eyes. Victor may have been hurt, but he was also pissed. He stuck up his middle finger at the beast and started yelling, Screw you. You're no good. Victor knew that he was relatively safe while in the cave, because this wasn't the first time that it had found them there. The beast eventually lost interest in the two and it wandered off. From that point on, nightly visits were a common thing from the beast and searching for other survivors or the remains was out of the question. I'm unsure of the timeline of the events after that point, but after a certain amount of time, a rescue team had come to save Victor and Alexandra. Victor and Alexandra had been the only people to survive the endeavor, other than the man who had injured himself on the way up. For the time, the two of them had been taken in by the government, but they were transported away from the town that they were from. Neither Victor nor Alexandra could get in contact with family or friends from their town. Eventually, Victor had gotten a visit from two men with all the letters that he had sent. The two men basically said that he needed to stop sending these letters to his hometown. Otherwise, he wouldn't be able to send letters anywhere else. If you catch my meaning. The KGB was well known in the Soviet Union, and Victor knew that he couldn't just stick around, otherwise he would go missing. Victor eventually met with Alexandra, and they made a plan to leave the Soviet Union. They decided that the best place to go was the United States, because it would be the only place that the KGB couldn't follow them. They essentially skipped town and found their way to the United States. Victor and Alexandra eventually settled down together, and had become citizens of the U.S. The irony of the situation is not lost on me. Victor decided to tell the story because the information the Soviet Union had eventually released was diluted. The report said that there was only 10 hikers with 9 dead. There was also a statement that there was no alcohol with the group other than medicinal items. The reports made no mention of Victor or Alexandra. It was also mentioned that the investigators had measured radiation from the clothing of the hikers. Victor remembered that the blood was slightly luminescent, as well as that it emitted heat. And this raised a question. Was the beast itself radioactive? Was the beast man-made? What worries me about this story is, why would these Soviets make a beast like this? And what did they plan to do with it? Most of all, are these beasts still being developed? Why I Can't Go Outside at Night Written by Royal Lawton Alright, I should probably get going. I tell my two friends, Nicole and John. Ah oh man, your stupid 8 o'clock curfew. John asked me. Yep, my parents are really strict about it for some reason. Well, I guess we have tomorrow, Nicole says, 
Yeah, I say. I get on my bike, wave at the two when I head off. I get home at 8 o'clock sharp, trying to avoid my mom as I walk to my room and settle in. I didn't know if it was a trust issues or if my parents were just weird, but it annoyed me to no end that despite being 16 and all of my friends were able to stay out past midnight, I was stuck in my house by 8 and forced to be asleep by 10. It had been like this since I was 13 and 3 years later. They still never allow me to stay up any longer, even on the weekends. It was something that I protested many times, but each time only ended in strict punishments. My mom opened my door and I was looking through my phone. You know, instead of entirely avoiding me and being angry all the time, you could ask why we do this. I sigh looking at her. I don't know how, but I never thought to ask why this was a thing. I guess I had just learned over the last couple of years to not question the rules. It had just occurred to me that I could, but my mindset was uh, like that for a long time. Well then, why? Everyone around me is staying up past midnight, and you guys never even think about letting me stay up with them for what? Is it trust? No. My mom replied calmly. Do you still think I'm ten? Again, no, my mom tells me. Something told me that she had been expecting everything I had just asked. I waited for more. Our family line has never reacted to staying up well. I don't know why. I think for a couple of seconds. What happens? We just tend to get sick. It's been too long since the last time I stayed out long enough to remember what happens, but it's not good. BS. That's utter BS, I think to myself. Is that even a thing? I ask. Well, apparently it is. It's not like we've ever gone to anyone about it. Once we figured out that staying up makes us sick, we were satisfied. All we had to do was not stay up past 10, and we'd be fine. Weird, okay. Alright, well, now you know. She said happily to me. I love you. Yeah, I love you too, I said. And of course I did. But everything she just said was a total BS. I went on the internet and searched about for an hour on what kind of disease or disorder does this. And there was nothing. I asked various friends and they kept telling me that it wasn't a thing. The most that I found is that maybe our bloodline produces too many sleep chemicals at night, that it makes us sick. But that also sounded like absolute garbage. My mom had intentionally asked me to ask her why, and she gave me a lie in return. What was the reason for this? To keep me from being angry to try and give me a false satisfaction of knowing why they do this to me. Well, it didn't work either way, and now I wanted real answers, a lot more than before. I reached out to Nicole and John, and over the course of the night, we had developed a plan to get me out of the house right after 10pm tomorrow. I don't know why, but I was excited. I was finally going to, after years of listening, protest my parents in the best way possible. 
by breaking the rule worse than I ever had before. And my parents would never know. The next day, I did the usual thing. I talked to my friends, messed around on my phone, messed around with my dog, etc. Nothing too special. I was constantly anxious throughout all of it, and my parents saw that. But they never knew why, nor did they ask me. Which was fortunate because I had no lies to tell them if they did. The only thing that wasn't normal for me was that I stayed home for most of the day. Usually, I would go out with my friends at around 5 and be back by 8. But this time, it was different. I was in my room when my mom knocked on my door. You're going to bed now, she asked. Yeah, I respond. I'm surprised you didn't go anywhere today. Well, yeah, I just kind of wanted to chill out today. Hey, good night, I tell her. I listened carefully, making sure that I heard the door to her room close. I waited about 20 minutes and then I carefully walked to the door, opening and closing it as quietly as I could. And that was all I needed. At my house, it's pretty hard to hear anything from outside, so I was pretty safe. The only thing that could be a potential threat is the windows from the kitchen, which is what John and Nicole were there for. Hey, I say excitedly. Hello, Nicole said happily. You think you're in the clear? She asked. Yeah, I should be. We should probably leave quick though so they don't see us through the windows, I say. Alright, well, let's go, John exclaimed. He's the only person here who has a car, which we got into when we drove off. From the moment I had left the house, there was this weird sense of guilt or dread but I didn't pay attention to it at all. Not at first. At the same time, I was excited. My parents had never checked to make sure that I was in bed, so I knew that I would be able to get away with staying up past 12. And besides that, I had never done something like this in my life. It was invigorating. We made our way over to the same park we usually go to. A nice, peaceful place with a couple benches, a fountain and a huge forest on one side. There were gravel trails that led to various places, one that went into the forest, that we had no intention of going out at night, along with a bunch of other trails that led to other places. We hung out, talked, messed around on our phones and a bunch of other random things. I wish we could do this every night. I said to Nicole as I sat on the bench beside her, John had been doing something else completely random, so as usual, we're left alone. Yeah, it's pretty weird at night. No one's ever driving by, it's all just silent, Nicole explained. That is a really unnerving part of being out here, I say. Oh, you sort of get used to it after a bit. Only sort of, she says. It's kind of funny. This is the only place John and I are willing to be if we're going to be outside this late. I can't blame you. I sort of find comfort in knowing the place as well as I do. Yeah. It was right here that that same dread feeling came back to me. And this time, it was a lot stronger. I tried to ignore it, but it was like an intrusive thought. Go back. Something isn't right. This isn't okay. You're not safe out here. 
I'm getting really uncomfortable for some reason. I say to Nicole. What do you mean? She asks. I just, I don't know. It's this dread feeling. Um, is it you feeling bad that you snuck out here tonight? Well, that's what I thought it was. I had brushed it off as guilt, but it's definitely not that. I'm almost scared for some reason. What about? I have no idea. I was cut off by a large snap. Being already scared, I shut up, looking in the direction that the loud noise came from. It was in the forest. I instinctively took a small step back. Hey, Nicole said to me, that's probably just John. I remembered that he went off somewhere, but I didn't pay attention to where. I almost felt a little better before I heard his, hello, behind us. Something just snapped in the forest. It sounded like a branch too big for anyone to break. I say to him, yeah, I swore that I heard something in this direction. He's a little spooked about it. Says that he was suddenly creeped out about something he couldn't put his finger on. Nicole said. I am a little interested in what that was though. I say, more lying than not. Something was making me terrified. I really looked into the forest at every detail. Scanning over the entire front of it. It didn't take me long to notice two purple eyes staring back at me. It all hit me at once. Immediately after I noticed the eyes, I noticed the big, bulky shape behind them moving slowly towards us, or me. A big thump radiated through the forest and I knew by instinct that it was a gigantic foot. I take a step back as fear I had never felt in my life rushed over me. My brain had created an image of whatever it was, even though I couldn't see it properly in the darkness that blanketed it. Almost like my brain was telling me what it looked like. And as I saw it slowly, menacingly making its way forward, the lights around us, which were supposed to have stopped working years ago, all flickered. I did not like the picture my mind was drawing at all, or the name that picture gave me. The Ravager. The name instantly connected to whatever was walking in front of me and an instinctual fear I couldn't understand made me back away. The thing immediately responded to my sudden movement with a fast stop forward before going completely still, almost waiting for me to do something more. Amidst the complete silence of the night, it made a slow, low yet loud growling noise as it stared into my eyes that I could never put into words. I could feel the vibrations from the sound in its chest, Almost like when a speaker is playing overly loud music with a crazy amount of bass. I was scared out of my mind when I felt something grab my hand, only to realize that it was Nicole. I had noticed only now that this thing had me in a weird state of mind, where nothing other than the Ravager and I were in focus. Come on, she said. Immediately, I sprinted at the sidewalk. A loud roar bellowed through the night as I ran. Loud stomps followed, paired with the ground shaking as if there was an earthquake. I was running harder than I ever knew I could, and at the same time making sure my friends were safe. But within seconds, the ancient, as my brain told me, monster was behind us. The shaking knocked all of us to the ground and I turned around to see it. 
every light around us had turned on. The creature was huge and bulky, towering above us. Its black skin was covered by brown fur. It walked on all fours. Two large, curving horns were on either side of its head, which was vaguely cubesque, although it was slightly more slim. Two unmoving, bright and glowing purple eyes were locked on my face. Its nose extended down the bottom half of its face, hanging off of it. Little pads were on the top part of its legs, making them unlevel with the body. Things went through my mind as I looked at it in fear, in some really weird language. Nextium per noctum, tuam esse sitsum, tua este sanguine suo, nocte vastata, versicutor, detum atum nesitil. You should never have left in the night. That's all I needed to know exactly what was happening. Immediately after this, he rose in his hind legs for a couple of seconds before disappearing. The lights went out at the same exact time. We all got up and ran as quickly as we could to John's car. They brought me back to my house and then went home for themselves. Over the drive, I saw it observing us in random places. At one point, it chased our car. And at another, it was simply staring at us from a distance as we sped by. It's been a couple of days since then. My parents never caught me coming back in. I'm still really shaken up by whatever had happened there, despite having talked to my friends about it more than once. I did tell them that what happened was connected to me, but they still don't want to stay out like that again, which I can't blame them for it. But one thing I did know is the real reason my parents are so strict about this. I know why my mom had lied to me. I'm not mad at her anymore. Our family line has either been cursed by something or is a part of something that I don't know if any of us truly understand. It's haunted by a creature older and stronger than anything in your scariest nightmares. An entity capable of more than we want to find out. What my mom told me was simply a cover-up for something much harder to believe, unless you see it yourself, which they never intended on letting me do. I could have died that night. I think even as I write this, I'm trying to wrap my head around the fact. I still have no clue why it didn't take me in the few moments it had, while I was on the ground. But I'm absolutely sure that it would be less forgiving if it were to find me again. I'm still trying to understand what those thoughts really meant. I somehow know how to spell them, seeing as I had typed them out in the story earlier, but I had no idea what any of those phrases were actually saying, only a general idea of what it could mean. I'll let you guys know somehow if I can figure that out. Otherwise, I'll post more about my situation if I need to, but I doubt I will. I'm never breaking that rule again. Hopefully that's enough. I woke up alone and trapped in my school after dark. Written by Mr. Mills of 45. Slacking off. At some points, every kid does it. Every single one. And yes, even those goody two-shoes that claim they have never even thought of disobeying the rules or not completing their work. There will come that one test... That one assignment that makes them stop and think about if all the effort they're putting in this is truly worth it or not. 
It's just that most of them decide not to act on it. I was by no means a complete dead end when it came to my academics. In fact, I was an A&B student for the most part. Although, I had my fair share of failures, missing work, and discipline issues. None of it was major enough to put a crippling mark on my record. This particular day had started like any other. Boring class, monotonous teacher. Useless information and uninterested students. I hadn't gotten much sleep the night beforehand. The coffee that I had bought from our local Starbucks before coming to school wasn't doing much to help me stay awake. My eyes felt heavier than anvils as I fought to stay conscious. Emma, are you paying attention? Came the voice of my history teacher, Mrs. Mays. I did my best to snap to attention and pretend like I was giving my full effort. Grabbing my pencil as I scribbled down nonsense for dramatic effect. Yeah, sorry. I replied weakly. Just kind of tired. She glanced at me with an expression that said, I don't believe you in the slightest, and turned back to the board to continue the lesson. It was apparent that she had no interest in my excuse. My fatigue only increased as the mundane class went on. Sleep was pounding its way at the back of my eyeballs. It took every ounce of my mental fortitude and strength I had to prevent my eyelids from coming down and plunging me into a peaceful slumber. But as time went on, the clock ticked by and the sounds of the room weren't enough to stimulate me. The need for sleep eventually overcame my efforts. It just got too strong to fight any further and I was out cold soon enough. Laying my head on my arms as they rested on my desk. When I had awoken, my head was still awkwardly wedged between my arms. A lazy yawn left my mouth as I leaned back in my chair to stretch. Turning my head, I quickly was met with the sight of an empty classroom. No students and no teachers, and no sounds of conversation or any kind of socializing coming from the hallways. Huh? I groaned, reaching down into my pockets and retrieving my phone to check the time. 10.14pm. Immediately my heart sank. There is no possible way I could have slept that long, I thought. It all felt like some sort of bad dream. Why had no one tried to wake me up? I was sitting in the dead center of the classroom. So, not being able to see me wasn't the problem. Mrs. Mace, of all people, would have been more than thrilled to obnoxiously drop a book right on my desk to jerk me awake. And regardless, I tried unlocking my phone in, in an attempt to open the phone app and access my contacts to see if I could call for help, only to find that I had no signal, and that also applied to the Wi-Fi. I was completely cut off. No way to reach out. I dashed over to the front of the classroom and tried the landline on my teacher's desk. It turned out to also be a dud. I was mainly hung up on the fact that I somehow had no signal in the building. Crap, I exclaimed out loud, taking a deep breath and trying to prevent myself from panicking. That's the last thing you want to do in these kinds of situations. 
I tried to put common sense in the forefront of my mind. I saw no point in staying behind in the current classroom. There was nothing in there to help me and I had exhausted all the possible options. And so I stepped out into the dimly lit hallways, immediately becoming uneasy. There was something so unsettling about being in a school when it was empty. It felt eerie, just flat out wrong. Every one of my footsteps was amplified by the silence. Even the exhales of my breath seemed deafening in the empty halls. Hello, I called out, praying desperately to get some sort of response. But of course, nothing came. And once again, I was met with unforgiving silence. I peeked into the other empty classrooms, attempted to use their phones as well, but received the same results as earlier. Nothing seemed to be working. I took a different approach and made it to the main entrance of the building to try and open the doors to leave. But as soon as I had wrapped my fingers around the handle and yanked, they wouldn't budge. Not in the slightest. Are you serious? I complained, violently pulling at the handles and trying to throw the door open. Every bit of strength I wasted trying to get them open was futile. I was trapped with what appeared to be no way out. As I was about to give up, I remembered the glass in the doors. I could smash one of them and slip through into the freedom of the night. I quickly ran to one of the classrooms grabbed a chair, and came back. I fixated my eyes on the door for a few moments before, raising the chair and slamming it against the glass as hard as I could, only for it to pathetically backfire. I howled in pain when the vibrations of the blow were sent out through my hands, and I dropped my makeshift battering ram. The glass didn't have so much as a scratch on it. It was completely untouched and undamaged. How? Was all I could let out as I cut my hands together, still stinging from my unsuccessful swing. So this time, I went for a different strategy, picking the lock. I was a no-skilled lockpick by any means, but I saw no other choice and I grabbed a paperclip from one of the nearby rooms, straightened it, and attempted to pick the lock of multiple exits. As soon as I stuck the dang thing in, it broke. I don't know how or why, but the second that it made contact with the inside of the lock, it would just simply split in half over and over. I'm pretty sure I went through nearly a dozen paperclips before I finally gave up and leaned against a nearby wall, rubbing my forehead as I tried to think of something else. I truly had no way out. That much was obvious. My best hope was probably to find somewhere to get comfortable and wait it out until morning. I pulled out my phone again to at least be able to check the time. 10.31pm Just as I was reaching down to put my phone back into my pocket, my ears picked up a small and faint whistling sound coming from the cafeteria. It had a rhythm, like it was a tune being rehearsed. The night custodian, it was the first thing that had crossed my mind. He could help me get out of here. I practically sprinted towards the cafeteria, nearly tripping and falling in my haste, 
I was determined. I wasn't going to let this strange situation go on any longer. This guy was pretty much my savior at this point. Arriving at the entrance of the cafeteria, I found no one. The custodian was nowhere to be seen. Not him or any of his cleaning supplies. But the whistling. The whistling had gotten louder than before. It was coming from the center of the cafeteria, but there was no source or voice it could have originated from. Not one that I saw. This is when I began to panic. I involuntarily clenched my hands into fists. My fight-or-flight instincts were going off like crazy. There was no tangible threat around me, but my stomach was still churning. Churning like I was being stalked by a hungry predator. Who's there? I shouted. The only response I received was the sound of the whistling growing louder. I snapped my head around, desperate to find some sort of answer to the mysterious rhythm. But everything was just as empty and dimly lit as before. It was getting to a point where I wanted something to be behind me. At least then, I would know what to run from. My skin was crawling. I could feel the goosebumps forming around me. I just wanted this to be over. A small part of me held out false hope that I was only dreaming. But I knew the bitter truth. I wasn't. I was fully awake going through this real life nightmare. I did the only thing that I could and I started to walk away from the cafeteria. Luckily, the whistling became fainter the further away that I got. But another sound replaced it. Something far worse. Something much more bone-chilling. That I nearly jumped out of the clothes that I was wearing. Hey, where are you going? A deep, scratchy, commanding voice called out to me. It sounded beyond angry. Angry at me. As if I had just committed some horrible crime and I needed to pay. I didn't look back. I didn't even take a second to think. I just ran. Ran as fast as I could. Letting the loud collision of my footsteps with the hard floor bounce off the walls as I booked it. I laid eyes upon a stab bathroom at the end of the hallway. I couldn't hear anything giving chase behind me, but it didn't matter. I kept moving. The sight of the bathroom causing me to only pump my legs harder as I approached it. I launched myself at the door, grabbed the handle and threw it open, and then quickly closed and locked it behind me. I turned around, rested my back against the door and let out a huge sigh of relief. But my heart was still going a mile a minute. It took a bit for the adrenaline to cool down. I figured I was safe in here for now. Everything looked to be the same as always. A toilet, a sink, a mirror. But I didn't dare look in the mirror for too long. Call me paranoid all you want, but you would feel the same way if you were in my situation. There was an energy, a force of some sort that was giving me the overwhelming urge to fall asleep in the bathroom. I can't explain it so. You're just gonna have to take my word for it. This wasn't just me being tired or experiencing normal fatigue. I truly had no idea what it was or what caused it. 
I just knew that I couldn't go back to sleep again. That's what had got me in this mess in the first place. I fought against it as much as I could, but the bathroom was winning. If I stayed in there for long enough, I would surely succumb to its demands for my slumber. I didn't want to go back out there, believe me. But who knows what would happen if I were to fall asleep for a second time. I couldn't take that risk. And so, I sucked it up, prepared myself for whatever horrors might be waiting for me on the other side, and I swung the door back open. This time around, I wasn't in the hallway this bathroom usually resided in. No, I was in a much more broken down, dreary, and cobweb-infested space. It was lined with rotted wood supports with a concrete floor, not to mention all the insulation running along the corners and ceiling. The basement. I was in the freaking basement. At this point, questioning how the door led me to the dang basement seemed idiotic. All things considered, I just had to keep moving along. I stopped caring how weird things got, as long as I could keep myself alive and kicking. I stepped out into the cold, bitter, and even a little damp air. Granted, it wasn't as silent as the rest of the building above. No, I had the company of all the furnaces and boilers running. The sounds of rats and other rodents scurrying across the ground. God, I've always hated vermin. The basement was by no means bright, but it had enough light running through me to at least know where I was going. I crept around corner to corner, turning back every few seconds to make sure someone, or rather something, wasn't following me. Every second felt like an eternity in the isolated territory. I'm gonna be honest, it was extremely tempting to sit down in a corner, give up and die, but I knew I couldn't go out so pathetically. I needed to keep moving. As hopeless as this horrific situation seemed, I still had a hope that I would get through it unscathed, even though such optimism felt pointless. The corridors of the basement were highly confusing. I ended up going in a circle multiple times. It was unnecessarily convoluted in its design, which meant that I would be spending much more time down here than I wanted to. But in the end, I knew that it was worth it to put an end to this. The now familiar sound of the whistling returned, but this time it seemed much closer, louder, more aggressive than before. It still kept that same rhythm it possessed earlier, a song that I had never heard before. No, please no, I whispered out loud, debating back and forth on whether or not to cut my hands over my ears. I didn't want to deprive the sense from myself in case... I wasn't the only thing down here. I needed to hear the noises of something else, anything else, anything but that godforsaken whistling. Emma, came that same bassy and monstrous voice from earlier. I stopped, not being able to do anything as a result of the paralyzing fear running through my veins. The sheer auditory force of that voice made my legs tremble. It was far worse down here. The walls were much closer which caused it to echo powerfully through the tight hallways. 
Just like last time, I couldn't hear any sort of footsteps or mass moving towards me with the voice, confirming it was disembodied and without form. Come back, Emma. It rang out again. I ran even faster than before. I didn't care which direction I went or where the corridors led me. I just needed to get away. But I was hopelessly trying to outrun something I didn't understand. I sprinted from corner to corner, looking for any sign or way to get out of this hellish basement. It felt endless, like I had no chance of ever leaving and this would soon become my final resting place. I kept going. I could feel myself becoming more winded and losing precious energy by the second. My eyes widened when I found the elevator door sat at the far end of one of the hallways. Of course, I wasn't naive enough to think that it would be the complete end all of this. After everything that had happened so far, it seemed too good to be true. But it was my best shot. I picked up the pace and threw myself at the door rapidly slamming the palm of my hand against the buttons as I kept twisting my neck to see behind me. No, Emma, please, don't go. The voice persisted, this time sounding desperate, like it needed me to stay down here. The elevator doors opened slowly with a ding. I quickly jumped inside and repeatedly pressed the button for them to close as quickly as possible. Once they came together and the image of that basement was finally wiped from my line of sight, I leaned back against the door and let out a huge sigh of relief while clenching my trembling hands together. The gravity of the situation was really starting to get to me. I had so many questions with not a single answer. I didn't know if I would truly make it out of there. What if I die trapped here in this strange dimension? Will people even know that I was gone? Surely somebody would come looking. I knew that it would be pointless to go to the police if I ended up back in reality. They would laugh me off as some nutcase teenager, trying to get her name in the paper. No one of importance would take me seriously. Soon, the elevator dinged as it came to a stop. I straightened my posture, clenched my fists, and prepared myself for whatever might be waiting for me on the other side. When I stepped out, I was seemingly in a classroom, but instead of all the hard plastic metal chairs that usually occupied the space, they were all office chairs with wheels at the bottom, all of which faced the opposite side of the room that I was on. A marble counter was on the left side with an assortment of sinks and coffee machines. I quickly realized where I was. It wasn't any of the classrooms. It was the teacher's lounge. In all of the chairs sat the figures of teachers from the school, most of which I recognized. But I could only see the back of their heads, except for one. Standing prominently at the front of the room was Mrs. Mays pointing at the whiteboard with words all over it written in red marker. Words that I didn't recognize the language of. I had never seen them before. Not English, Spanish, Russian, or anything of the sort. And the thing is, Mrs. Mace looked different. Horrifically different. For one, most of her outfit was torn to shreds and ripped up. 
It had clearly seen better days. Her hair was a hot mess, looking as if she had stood in front of a high-powered fan for an extended period of time. But that was only minuscule compared to what I focused on the most. The spine-chilling feature that truly caught my attention. Her teeth. God, her teeth. They were elegantly sharp, like high-grade surgical knives. They could easily tear through something like flesh or tissue, like it wasn't even there. Not that I wanted to find out. Well, it seems like you finally awoken. Pretty little Emma. She cackled, her scratchy voice echoing off the walls of the room. What, what is this? I muttered. With no response from Mrs. Mays, all the other teachers turned around in their chairs to face me, the supports creaking as they shifted their weight. When they revealed themselves, they were in a similar shape to Mrs. Mays. Torn clothing, messy hair with razor-sharp teeth that would make a great white jealous. They all smiled wildly at me, not moving a muscle. None of their eyes even blinked as their teeth gleamed through the room in the dim lighting. It's rude to interrupt a meeting, Emma, Mrs. Mace announced, only increasing the malicious, hungry look in all the teacher's eyes. Stay away from me, I demanded. It was a miracle I even found the courage to speak in the first place. The teachers all stood up slowly, causing me to shift back towards the elevator doors. I reached back to press the button to call the elevator back up, but my heart practically exploded in my chest when I didn't feel anything. I snapped my head around, only to find nothing but a plain white wall. The elevator was gone as if it were never there. I froze, raising my hands in front of me to prepare for an attack. You see, Emma, we can't stand it when you don't pay attention. All of you ungrateful little brats. Mrs. May snarled. You waste all the education we try to provide you with. So much knowledge and information, yet it means nothing to you. But now... Oh, I know you're paying attention now, aren't you? I kept inching away against the wall as the teachers crept up on me. Little by little, step by step, they moved in formation like a fleet of soldiers, their smiles only stretching further as they got closer. There were no doors, no windows, and no exit. This time, I was truly trapped with no hope left. This would be my end getting torn apart by these demonic doppelgangers of my educators. One of the teachers lunged to me, opening his jaws and nearly getting a mouthful of my forearm. I quickly yanked it away. The surface of my skin ended up getting scratched by a couple of his teeth. Blood was drawn. It silently dropped to the floor as I howled from the stinging pain. The other teachers still maintained their manic grins, as they closed in on me. I tried to fight. I tried everything in my power to prolong the agonizing death that was just seconds away from becoming a reality. I kicked, punched, screamed bloody murder as I felt their hands grabbing and tugging at me. The texture of their skin feeling so rubbery as it came into contact with mine. 
It wasn't long before I lost any sort of advantage I had. They grabbed me. They continued to smile ear to ear with their serrated teeth as I felt the saliva drop from their mouth onto my face. They taunted me with their expressions, wanting me to see how much they enjoyed my unfiltered terror as I waited for them to begin tearing me apart. But as if what little light was left had gone out, everything went pitch black. A deep, endless, void-like black lacking any color. Then a sudden burst of white hit me like a semi-truck. I tilted my head up, feeling slightly dizzy from the groggy sensation of waking up from something so intense. I took a look around and found myself in the school nurse's office now, except it was much more bright than what I had experienced for the past who knows how long. I was laid out on one of the cots, a pillow underneath my head for support. Good to see you awake again, Emma, said a soft, feminine voice. The nurse walked in. I was relieved to see her clothes weren't torn. Her teeth weren't serrated and her hair looked well put together. I was even a little jealous of how elegantly she had maintained it. What the heck happened? I groaned, lifting myself to sit up. You fell asleep in Mrs. Mace's classroom. When she tried waking you up after class, you wouldn't move from the seat. She told me that you kept gripping it tightly and making strange noises. I think you may have been having some sort of intense nightmare. Our security guard, Roy, you've seen him around, correct? Well, he brought you here. And I've been looking after you just in case it turned into something worse. I glared at her dumbfounded. That didn't feel like a nightmare at all. It was so vivid. It simulated sensations to a level of detail far beyond any dream I had had in the past. Oh, I said, adjusting my sweatshirt. Well, thank you, but I think I'm okay now, I responded. Can I go? I suggested. Desperate to get home as soon as I could. The nurse glanced at me with a friendly smile, biting down on her bottom lip as she shifted herself in her chair. Well, it's actually three o'clock. The school day is over. I called your mother to come pick you up if that's okay. She'll be outside any minute if you want to go wait for her. Yeah, thanks. That'll work. I really appreciate it. I smart. Still rubbing the remaining sleep from my eyes. I got up from the cot and marched over to the door. Just before I stepped out, the nurse's voice stopped me dead in my tracks. And Emma, from now on... Please, try not to fall asleep in class, she informed me, a hint of condescension in her tone. I ignored it. I had no sort of drive left in me to argue. Something clicked in my mind as I walked away. I passed the main office desk and I headed out the door. Grabbing my right arm, I lifted up my sweatshirt sleeve, and there was a scar. A small stretch of dried blood running across my forearm. I looked up and darted my eyes around. The reception ladies behind the desk were now glaring at me. They appeared normal, not like their hideous doppelgangers. 
But the way they looked at me told me that they knew something. Something I didn't. I broke eye contact and got out of there as quickly as possible. Jumped in the car with my mom. And I drove home. All I could do was stare at the scar on my forearm the entire ride. Even as she tried to engage in conversation. How did you get that, sweetie? My mother inquired. Seemingly genuinely concerned. Just scratched myself with a pencil. I lied. From that day forward, I got my schedule on track. I made sure to bring highly caffeinated beverages around with me as often as I could. Never again was I going to fall asleep in class. Not after that. I don't know what that was or what it meant, but I knew dang well it wasn't just some nightmare. It was a warning. A warning I know for a fact I'll never forget. Whatever you do, do not fall asleep in class. Ever. For the love of God, please stay awake. I got lucky and made it out of whatever warped reality nightmare I was put into. But you, you may not be so lucky. I hunt dimensional intruders on behalf of the United States government. Written by Boy with a Loaf of Bread. Target is four clicks out. Continue with extreme caution. Copy that. Temporal disturbances. Negative Viper 1. Scopes are clear. We're still monitoring the situation in real time. Copy Overlord. Proceeding with takedown. I turned my crew as we flew over the Gallatin National Forest in the Black Hawk. Its engines shook the air inside as it carried us over the trees. All right, I said through the headset to the team. Operation Lambda is a go, I said, receiving a series of acknowledging nods from the rest of them. Over the dropout point in 60 seconds, lights out. The pilot said over the radio as the chopper started to circle over the LZ. Suddenly, the red lights inside turned off, leaving the only illumination to the last sliver of sunlight dropping off over the eastern horizon. With that, we dropped down and activated our night vision goggles. As the chopper hovered over the drop point, we lowered our ropes and descended down to the forest floor, taking position around each other in a circle as we secured the LZ. Viper 4, clear. Viper 2, clear. Viper 5, clear. Viper 3, clear. Viper 1 clear. I replied to the rest of the team as I scanned the area with my rifle. The target is two clicks west from our position. Viper 2 take point. Roger that. Viper 2 replied. Move out. Slowly, we began to methodically maneuver our way through the forest, making sure to check every inch of our route for any type of temporal anomalies caused by the target. Other than the occasional cracking of twigs, the only sounds were that of the wild nightlife. Captain, Viper 2 said through the radio, I've got something here. 
While the squad halted and held position, I made my way to the front to inspect what had been found. Viper 2 was in front of a small stream flowing downwards from the hill. The flashlight attached to its rifle was aiming down at the stream. I got an anomaly, small but definitely residue from the target, he said as I came up behind him. Sure enough, he had found one. While the stream itself was flowing in the correct direction, there was still something extremely wrong with it. Thousands of tiny bubbles were popping and fizzing out of it, as if all the water flowing within was carbonated. The targets that you will be hunting are not of this world, or even this dimension. Our instructor had said, The realms that they come from may have completely different laws of physics, separate from our own universe. So, as they pass through our reality, the two begin to contradict one another. This causes anomalies both transdimensional and temporal in nature. According to command, these intruders had been coming through to our reality ever since the early 1940s. Something about the commencement of humanity's experiments with atomic weapons had been the lining of the dimensional barriers surrounding the Earth, allowing other beings to occasionally pass through. In 1952, the United States government created Task Force 51 to track down the intruders and terminate them before the anomalies following in their wake brought down irreversible damage to the time-space continuum. It was my job well, our job to ensure the safety of the human race. Overlord, come in. I radioed in. We read you, Viper One. We have a Class 7 spatial anomaly. Local environmental assets have been affected. Copy, Viper One. We see your helmet cam. Marking your position for cleanup crews. Proceed to the target with caution. Copy, Overlord. Viper One out. With that, we continued on through the forest. About half a click away from the target, the air around us was suddenly filled with the screams of what appeared to be a deer. It howled and yelped until violently ending in one last blood-curdling cry. The entire squad snapped into position without a word. That came from the west. Viper 2 sat over the comms, most likely caused by the target. Agreed, I replied. Hey, Cap, do you hear that? Viper 4 asked. Hear what? I asked, turning my head towards them. Exactly, he whispered. There's nothing. It took me a moment to realize, but he was right. There wasn't a single sound throughout the entire forest. Not an insect, not a bird, nothing. There was complete and absolute silence. My heart nearly stopped when the voice of Overlord sliced through the silence in the radio. Viper 1, come in. This is Viper 1, I said, catching my breath. Go ahead. We detected a Class 1 temp. Suddenly, a wave of static washed over the comms, blocking out our communications. Overlord, come in. Static. Overlord. From Dallas, Texas, the Flash apparently official, President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, was the only thing coming out from our overlords at Frequency Now. With that, we all began to look at one another, 
oblivious as to what was going on. It must be a temporal anomaly, Viper 2 said, cutting off his outer comms. Agreed, I said. We're on our own. Keep an eye out. Quietly, the rest of my team began to move once again. We're in the dark now. As we moved closer to the target's last recorded position, we began picking up more strange broadcasts from the Overlord's frequency. We shall defend our island, whatever the cause may be. We shall fight in the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. NBC cannot confirm that a second plane has hit the South Tower of the World Trade Center. That's one small step for a man, one giant leap for mankind. We have unconfirmed reports of nuclear detonations in Los Angeles and Seattle. With the final transmission, the frequency went static once more. Cut the channel, I said. Nothing more than an anomaly at this point. And with that, the comms are silent. The team halted as Viper 2 stopped up ahead of us and raised a fist. Captain, he said, eyes on the target. Everyone remained in place as I slowly made my way up the hill to confirm the sighting. On the other end of the hill, there was a small clearing in the forest with a single log cabin in the middle. Faint yellow lights protrude from the smeared windows as a steady stream of smoke flowed from the chimney above. This was it. According to the reconnaissance information from the area, we have confirmed that this section of Gallatin National Forest has been cleared of any and all foliage. The Overlord had said during our briefing before our deployment to Montana. A large tactical overhead map of the region was projected along the wall of the hangar, showing a circular section of the forest completely empty, except for a single object in the center. It is to our understanding that a lone structure resembling a log cabin is now the only thing in the entire clearing. This was not there seven hours ago. We had seen examples before of intruders forging refuges for themselves which meant that this would be an even more difficult assignment. Given that now, it was obvious that the entire surrounding area had been exposed to high amounts of Class 1 Temporal Spatial Anomalies. Slowly, the team began to circle the small cabin with their weapons trained. Viper 4, prepare to breach. Copy. Viper 4 then began to make his way to the entrance of the cabin and placed a breaching charge on the wooden door. Windows. Nothing showing up on thermal. Viper 3 replied. Viper 3, 2 and 5. When I give the order, open fire through the windows. Danger close. Copy. And with that, I made my way behind Viper 4 and placed a hand on his shoulder. Engage. Suddenly, a barrage of gunfire erupted around the trees into the cabin's windows as the rest of the team emptied their loaded clips. At the exact moment the firing had ceased, I gave the final order. Breach and clear. The charge in the door then detonated, hurling burning splinters outwards at Viper 4 and myself as we entered the cabin. However, once we had cleared the threshold of the cabin, we entered what seemed to be an abandoned, dilapidated mansion. 
What the hell? Viper Force said. Cut the chatter. Squad, regroup on me. We have a situation. Within moments, everyone else had gathered around the entrance to the cabin. What's the situation? Viper 2 asked. The cabin appears to be dimensionally transcendental. It seems that the interior is modeled after an old manor-styled estate. Crap, Viper 3 replied. This isn't going to be an easy one. Agreed, I said stepping back inside. Then again, we don't get paid for easy. Inside, the mansion seemed to be laid out in two levels. A few steps in, a large staircase divided two separate hallways heading left and right. How you want to take this, Captain? Viper 5 asked. 2 and 3, check the upstairs. 4, you check the downstairs with me. 5, wait outside and check the area. If radios go silent for a full hour, retreat to a secure location and call in the drone strike. Acid denial is our main priority. Copy that, Viper 5 said, stepping outside. Suddenly, the sound of music from a piano began to pour down from the upper level of the mansion. Beethoven, Viper 3 said curiously. We all then turned our head towards him for a moment, surprised. This only seemed to warrant a shrug from him. When then all of us looked upwards towards the music. On me, I said, slowly making my way up the stairs with my rifle trained on the saurus. The rest of the team, except for five, moved on with me, abandoning our former plan given the certain circumstances that had presented themselves. As we made our way up, the continuous melody of music drowned out the creaking wooden steps beneath us. When we had reached the second level, the dark hallways had stretched out to either side of us as the candles along the walls began to glow to life, as their flames began to slowly ignite themselves. After a few moments, it became clear that the night vision was going to be nothing more than a hindrance at this point. Goggles off, everyone, I said as I slid my knob off onto my helmet. The rest of the squad quickly followed. Music seems to be coming from there, Viper 3 said, as he trained his rifle on the door at the far side of the hallway on the left. Without a word, we made our way to the door, stacking up behind it. Slowly, Viper 3 reached out to the door handle and turned it slightly. Unlocked, he whispered. I then tapped his shoulder three times, giving him the signal to open a breach. Like clockwork, he slid the door open as we all piled in, training our weapons at every corner of the room. Inside was a large study, with a crackling fireplace at the far side of the room. A large black grand piano stood over a red carpet at the center. It continued to spout out music, without anyone or anything playing its keys. Clear, I said after lowering my weapon. Target is not in sight. As we began to survey the room, looking for any further clues as to the whereabouts of the target, Viper 3 began to walk over to the autonomous piano. He seemed almost mesmerized by it as he reached out his hands to touch one of the keys. As he did, a series of serrated teeth pierced through the fallboard as it suddenly bit down on his hand, amputating it from his wrist. He let out a pained cry as blood sprayed from his arm. 
Without hesitation, we opened fire on the piano, shredding it into thousands of tiny wooden splinters as an inhuman screech filled the air of the room. When the room was silent, Viper 2 went down to check on 3, who was now laying on the floor with a small pool of blood building up beside him. It bit clean through the bone, he said, wrapping his arm in a turnbuckle. He then looked up at me. We need to get him out of here, and fast. What the heck was that? 3 asked, biting down on his teeth. I've never seen an intruder look well like that, Viper 4 said, walking over to the ruins of the piano with his rifle trained on it. And then a loud wooden growl started to reverberate across the entire floor. Before I could even say anything, the floorboards beneath 2 and 3 broke apart, as a massive hand formed by broken pieces of the floor, along with wires and insulation, enveloped them. In an instant, the amalgamated hand squeezed them both into globs of exploding blood and organs. The hand then retreated back into the floor, leaving no fragments that it had ever been there, except for the unrecognizable remains of my two team members. What the hell? Viper 4 shouted, backing away. The target isn't in the house, I whispered. It is the house. There is no escape, the disembodied voices of 2 and 3 said. As I looked up to see where the voices were coming from, I saw both of their heads mounted over the fireplace. Their eyes were black as sin, and their mouths were contorted and twisted into sinister smiles. What's that saying? They said together. The house always wins. Viper 4 and I trained our rifles on the two heads, still smiling down at us. I shall build my foundation upon your bones. Your soul shall rot in the vestibule of torment, and you shall perish as all have before. Ooh, Discordia. They cried out laughing. With a natural reflex, 4 and I unloaded more ammunition into the heads cackling over the fireplace. They immediately went silent. The entire interior of the house then began to creak. Run, I shouted as I made my way out of the study. Just as four got out, the ceiling collapsed into piles of wood, concrete, and a waterfall of thick red spews of blood. The entire hallway leading down to the stairway screamed in protest as howling cracks exploding around us erupting into a chorus of insane and human voices. As we made our way towards the stairs, I looked back down the hallway that we had just come from. At the far end where the study had once been, a massive face made of broken wooden porcelain was pushing its way towards us. Get down there now, I yelled as I emptied the rest of my magazine into the encroaching head, getting closer and closer with each chop of its serrated, splintered mouth. I then rolled down the stairs as another amalgamated hand shot through the other hallway in an attempt to grab me. The first floor of the mansion began to twist and contort its dimensions, trying to keep us from the door as the giant head blasted through the hallway, growing in size as it began to connect itself with the splintered hand in some unimaginable contorted abdominal form. With a final sprint to the door, I tossed an active grenade behind me, 
jumping out of the threshold, landing hard on the ground outside in the forest clearing. A barrage of gunfire momentarily disoriented me as I sat back up, when I realized that it was coming from Viper 5, who was higher up on the edge of the tree line. I backed myself up, loading another magazine into my rifle and joining in on the combat. Through the exterior of the tiny log cabin that housed the internal chaos, I witnessed my grenade detonate. The explosion reverberated to the roof of the cabin as a massive ball of fire erupted from the roof. As the fire faded away, the interior dimensions of the cabin began to leak out into our external reality in a wave of indescribable, ever-changing alien geometry. The internal living dimension floated up into the sky, as if in zero gravity. It screamed in defilement of our universe's laws of physics, as the ground around the cabin began to vibrate. I knew what this was. It was going to try to go back through the walls of reality, to whatever hellscape it had come from, and it was trying to take us with it. Call it in! I screamed to Viper 5. Call it in now! Without hesitation, Phi pulled out the flare gun from his holster and fired it into the sky. The purple flare shot up about 200 feet into the sky, before popping like a firework high above the forest. I knew now that it would only be moments until the drone flying high above opened fire on our location. Danger close, danger close. Mustering that little energy I had, I pulled Ford to his feet and helped him run as far as we possibly could. After a few hundred feet, however, the ground began to buckle and wave like an ocean during a storm. As we fell to our feet, we looked back towards the cabin. The now unrecognizable log house was twisting and floating about 50 feet above the ground. The air around it shimmered and vibrated in waves as the dimensional barriers of the cabin continued to leak outwards. For a moment, I thought that this was it, that after nearly 30 years of service, it would all end here. And then from up above, a faint whistle could be heard coming closer and closer. A moment later, I could see the faint, glowing tail of the drone's missile descending down with its ferocious intent. As it impacted the cabin, it exploded into a purplish-blue inferno as it consumed the entire dimensional anomaly. With one last protesting howl, the explosion then imploded it on itself with one victorious boom that nearly ruptured my eardrums. It was all over in a matter of seconds. Viper 4 and I sat in the clearing for a few minutes in complete silence as we awaited extraction. I had seen things that defied logic, killed beings that would drive a normal man insane just by a glimpse of its skin. But this, this was unlike anything I had ever encountered. But I was sure of one thing, it would be the last. I retired from the task force after that and moved down to Florida, where I'd been a volunteer at the local VA for the past few years. I feel like the only way I can try to reconcile the things I've seen was to help other veterans who have seen the hells of combat themselves. But no matter how much I do, no matter how much I try, the twisted voice of my fallen team still creeps into my nightmares every night, always whispering back to me, The house always wins.
Do Not Talk to Strangers at Midnight, written by Fear Podcast. My name is Thomas Jones, and for the past two weeks, I've been terrified to leave my own house. Let me explain. It all started when I started taking more night walks with my dog. I worked mostly nights since I was a kid, so this really didn't strike me as odd. If anything, I could never get used to going for a walk during the day. Too much sound and too many people. It just always rubbed me the wrong way. Anyways, I usually go for about a 30-45 to 45 minute walk most nights with my dog. I usually take the same lap around a few blocks and then just come back home on, on the next street over here. Well, uh, two weeks ago, I decided to take a different route because the one I had been doing was getting boring, and I even think my dog was getting sick of it. So, instead of heading north like usual, we ended up heading south towards town. This is usually not ideal, because there are a lot more people in that direction, but at the time that we go, it really doesn't matter. It is a chilly winter night, so I'm bundled up and have my headphones in, so I can listen to something as I walk. I'm kind of a weirdo, so I tend to listen to something a little spooky to get my blood pumping as I walk. It adds to the experience of the walk for me. So, it isn't unusual for me to get a little spooked out as I'm walking. On the other routes I normally take... I've seen all the nooks and crannies, so it doesn't really spook me out anymore. This was a bit different. I wasn't used to going to this part of town at night, so I was a little nervous. I don't usually see anyone walking around at night on these walks, especially since winter is hit. I made it about 20 minutes into my walk when I caught a glimpse of someone walking in my direction on the same side of the street. I moved on the outside of the snowbank, since I had my dog and I didn't want her to jump on them. This person struck me as a bit odd, because they were pretty young and were definitely not dressed for the weather. I took out my headphones and asked them if they were okay. They didn't respond at all, and they just stared at me. I asked again, but had no luck with a response the second time either. I asked if they needed me to call someone for them, and for the third time, I got nothing in response. I decided that maybe this was a teenager and was just too damn cool to talk to me or wear a jacket. I did notice something was a bit strange because my dog wasn't reacting to this person at all. Usually, she would be hopping around like a jackrabbit, trying to get this person to pet her. The person noticed that I had stopped talking to them and just continued down the road like I hadn't even talked to them at all. I chalked it up to weird stuff happening at night and I continued on with the walk. This was definitely going to be a shorter walk. That kid had kind of freaked me out. I would take the next left to the next road and start working my way back to the house. A minute later, I turned left onto the new street and was shocked to see the same team that I had seen a minute ago, sitting on a stoop about two houses down the street from me. He stared at me now, very intently. Gone was the expressionist look I had received earlier. 
it felt like he was staring right through me. And if looks could kill, I would have been dead on the spot. I moved to the other side of the road because I honestly couldn't figure out how he had beat me over here when he was going in the opposite direction. He kept staring at me as I walked by and I was grateful that this was such a short road and that I could take another left and hopefully be done with this odd kid. I could feel his eyes on me as I had my back turned to him and I had goosebumps all over. I had never experienced something this odd in any of the walks that I had taken in my life. Also, my dog was still acting like no one was there at all and I think that was what freaked me out the most. I made the left and I picked up the pace as I made my way home. I figured there was no way this kid could be anywhere on the way. Part of me wasn't really even surprised when I saw him again. But this time, he had another kid with him sitting on a swing in a park on the right side of the road. It looked like the kid that was with him was also not dressed well for the weather and was roughly at the same age. They both gave me that determined look, but this time, they had a little smirk on their faces, as if every time they saw me and I saw them, something in them lit up. I picked up my pace even more and started panting as I was walking. I don't know why I felt like I needed to get home quickly, but I decided that if I didn't, something bad was going to happen. I thought that I could hear someone whispering my name, but couldn't hear well over my heavy breathing. I was officially freaking out and felt like I was being hunted. I shouldn't have been this freaked out, right? They're just kids. But something about them gave me the creeps and I didn't want to stick around to find out if I was wrong. I didn't dare look behind me for fear that they would be right behind me with those beady eyes and that smirk. I walked about a quarter mile down the road and looked down an alley, and this time there were six of them, all roughly the same age and poorly dressed. I barely looked at them this time but noticed that their smiles were getting wider. I knew that I had heard one of them yell my name this time, Thomas. I just started running at this point, and as I made my way down the street, I saw them on every stoop gathering more and more kids, their smiles getting larger and larger, yelling my name. Thomas, Thomas. My dog was running with me as I sprinted back to the house and yet again, she didn't react at all. I don't think that she could see them at all. This was getting ridiculous and I needed to get home now. I was only two houses away now and my lungs were burning. I was completely spent and just hoped my legs would carry me the rest of the way. One house away, and there must have been about 50 kids at this point, all screaming my name. They never moved and their smiles never faltered. It's as if they were screaming directly into my mind. I was hoping that I was just going crazy because there was no way this was happening. I got up to my porch and pulled on my keys and opened the door as quickly as I could. I slammed the door shut behind me and ran to the phone. I called 911 because I really thought they were going to break down my door and attack me. As I called them, I ran up into my room and grabbed my handgun. 
If they were going to take me out, I was at least going to take a few along with me. I got on the line with the dispatcher and just told her some guys had chased me home, and I thought they were going to try and break in. There was no way I was going to tell her what I was actually seeing. I had to almost have her yell because I could still hear them screaming my name, as if they were right in my ear. I loaded my handgun and the dispatcher said an officer would be there in about a minute. I wasn't even sure if I had that long. I told her that I would be armed and to let the patrol know that so I wouldn't get shot. She said that she had passed it along and she stayed on the phone. I could still hear them screaming my name in my ear. And I just buried my head under my pillow because all of the screaming was giving me a splitting migraine. After about 10 seconds of that, I had to remind myself that I wasn't safe yet. I got up and went heading through the front door. I went downstairs to see if I could still see them through the window. I pulled the curtain back slowly and was surprised to see that the windows were completely fogged up like someone had been breathing directly on them. This made it impossible to see out of the window, but I thought I could make out the shape of them in the window. The yelling came to a halt, and the sound of silence almost scared me more than the yelling. I finally saw what I was hoping to see. I could see the red and blue of the police cars as they came driving down the road. They pulled up to the house and ran up to the front door with their weapons drawn. I put my handgun on the floor so that they wouldn't think I was a threat. They knocked on the door and I answered it. He asked if I was the person that had called and I told him that I was. He asked where the intruders were. I could see the teenagers standing on my lawn staring at me and I pointed out at the lawn. They looked at me confused as if they couldn't see what I was seeing. They told me that they didn't appreciate being brought out here for a joke. I swore that they were right there on the lawn, and they told me that they would clear the house and check the perimeter. I thought to myself that I must be going crazy if these guys can't see these kids. It almost makes more sense this way. I mean, how could this even be possible? It is more plausible that I'm going crazy or that these police officers can't see someone standing almost right in front of them. The officers went into the house and did a thorough search of it. All the while, I stayed at the front door, just staring back at the original teenager. He just stood a little ahead of the rest of them. There is a massive circle of them around my house now. I don't think I could even see a way out of here. The cops told me that they didn't find anything, and I pretty much just accepted that I must have had a nervous breakdown. They told me again that I shouldn't waste their time like this, but if anyone does come and try to break in, to call again. I thanked them for their time, and I went back into the house. As soon as the cops left, the windows cleared up and I could see them in all of my windows. I ran to my room and I hid under the covers like I would when I was a kid. I'm not sure when, but at some point, I finally fell asleep. When I woke up, I couldn't see any of them in my windows, and there didn't seem to be any sign of the kid. 
I chalked it up to it having to been a bad dream, and I tried to go on with my day. A few days went by without anything eventful happening. That was until I tried to go for another walk again. This time, I went to my normal route and I went earlier in the night. I didn't see anything until I was about five minutes from coming back to my house. And that's when I saw him walking on the opposite side of the street. He looked at me with the biggest smile I'd ever seen, and I just ran for my front door. Luckily this time, he didn't run me down, but I felt like I was being watched as I ran home. I haven't left my house since that night. He has been sitting under a tree in front of my house and always seemed to know where I am in the house. Because every time I look out the window, he is staring directly at me. I don't know what he wants, but I feel like if I go out there again, I'm not going to make it back. My neighbors don't even seem to notice he is there because they've walked by him plenty of times and never mentioned anything. It got down to negative two last night, and he just sat there like nothing bothers him. I kept hearing him whisper my name to me over and over again. I think he's trying to drive me crazy, or hell, I might already be crazy. I woke up this morning and of course, he was right there waiting for me under that tree like usual. I heard the mailman walking up the driveway and walked up to the door to get the mail from him. I couldn't risk going down to the mailbox to get it, just in case that was enough for him to get me. I really thought that I was nuts, until the mailman asked me why there was a kid sitting in my lawn. I was so happy to hear him ask that, and I completely broke down in tears. I told him everything, and he just stood there wild-eyed, he had been seeing the same kid walking around his house as well. I asked him how long ago he had seen him, and he told me it had been about three weeks. He said that he was delivering mail late and saw a kid in a similar state as I did, and he relayed a similar story as me, except the army of kids and the screaming. He had been seeing this kid every day on his route, he didn't seem worried about it, but I told him that he should come into the house. He declined my offer and said that he had to finish his route. I watched him walk away and didn't realize at the time that it was the last time I would see him alive. I saw on the local news that he had frozen to death while out on his route. It didn't make any sense either because it was a relatively warm winter day. I've come to the conclusion that I only have a week left. He made it about three weeks before that kid got him. I'm hoping that if I stay in the house, that I won't suffer the same fate. But all I can say is that you should not talk to strangers at midnight, or you might be stuck in the same situation as I am. Wish me luck. I'm a monster protecting humanity. Things are getting dangerous for me. 
Written by Mr. Mills of 45. All my life, I had been a puppet without realizing it. Spending every waking second taking orders from others without my input ever being considered. But I now understand why you humans praise freedom so much. It's exhilarating, cathartic, and an experience unlike any other. Being able to make my own choices and create my own destiny is one I thought I would never have until now. Ever since I had ran off from the agency, I left it all behind. I'd been roaming the forest for a few days now, feasting on things such as squirrels, rabbits, deer, even a black bear at one point, and of course, other cryptids. A few days back, I was reminded by an enemy that I do not have a name. I hadn't been thinking about it at the time. It was never really something that was on my mind often. The agency had never bothered to give me one. Not an official one anyway. So, I took the initiative to give myself one, going through many that didn't suit or fit me. It took a lot of trial and error before I finally settled on Brawn. Not that I really have anyone around to ever use it. You see, I'm alone out here. I have to be. The government, the agency, they're looking for me. I'm their multi-million dollar killing machine and I ran away. There's no way in hell they will let that one slide. I need to keep moving. Bringing others with me would only slow me down. And probably get them killed as well. I preferred to move around and migrate at night. That way, I had less of a chance of running into humans. It was more for my safety than theirs. I am a cryptid after all. If one gets a good look at me, they could report me to the agency once they come back out here to begin their search. And I wasn't going to take that chance, so I did everything in my power to avoid them at all costs. I kept myself low crawling around on all fours to stay hidden behind bushes and in the shadows. This whole thing would be much easier if humans were the only thing that I needed to avoid. But no, I also had to deal with the other cryptids, most of which did not take kindly to my presence in their territory. In the span of only about half a week, I had already encountered giant arachnids and insects, Shadowy spirits with red eyes who seem to love the dark for whatever reason, as well as the more common wendigos and skinwalkers. This forest had it all. If you were looking to die a horrible death to a cryptid, this was definitely the place to do it. On one night, I was moving through the vegetation as usual, trying to find some living sustenance that wasn't hikers or campers. God, there were so many. I had to change directions multiple times when some of them had decided to step off the trail, nearly causing me to be spotted and given away. The forest was just right. It didn't feel like how it did on most nights. No eerie silence, but it wasn't too loud either. The sounds of humans talking amongst themselves around their campfires was oddly peaceful to me. However, when I had come across one particular campsite of what appeared to be adolescents all laughing and conversing. I noticed something off in the distance watching them from behind a tree. Something tall but thin, 
far too big to be another human. It was stalking them, sizing them up like any other predator would do with their prey. I got down on all fours and scaled my way up the closest tree next to me, seeing if I could get a better look at the creature by using a vantage point. My vision allowed me to see well in the dark, so that wasn't the problem. It was the way the creature's body was angled. Something was off about him, even by a cryptid standards. I edged myself forward on one of the branches in the tree, waiting for the beam to make any sudden movement, digging my claws into the bark for extra grip. The humans hadn't noticed the creature's presence yet. They still sat there, mindlessly consuming their strange-looking beverages. The last thing I wanted to do was get noticed by these people, but they were in danger and I wanted to help. I don't know why the urge was so strong. I just felt like I was obligated to. I gotta take a whiz, I'll be back in a sec. One of them had announced to the rest. He got up off of his log and turned around to walk into the trees. The cryptid began to slowly move from his spot as he had stalked the boy, keeping himself quiet as to not snap any twigs or make a sound. I made my way down the tree and circled over behind the creature hoping to catch him off guard without being noticed. Now that I had gotten a better look at what it truly was, even I was taken aback by its appearance. The creature was only around a foot shorter than me, standing about seven feet high. It possessed a multitude of legs and by that, I mean an ungodly amount, and giving most centipedes a run for their money. Above all those pairs of legs sat a thin body, no more than just a couple inches in width. Its torso, chest, and abdomen were all the same thickness. This creature practically had the build of a leaf rake. On top of that thin body rested its head, a long, also thin rectangle that was just as far off to its sides as its legs. The cryptid also had a set of three green, triangular-shaped eyes on each end of its rectangular head as if it were some sort of hammerhead shark gone wrong. The boy had just made it to the tree and stopped, presumably about to begin urinating. The entity slowly crept up behind, and I sped up my low crawl towards it. I wanted to get to it before it was able to grab a hold of the unsuspecting victim. Once the creature was in range to snatch up its prey, one of its supposed legs extended outward from below, and stretched itself toward the boy, less than a foot from wrapping itself around his skinny neck, without him having a single clue. I quickly got on my hind legs and lunged between them, reaching out with one of my arms and slashing the limb right off, causing the cryptid to wail and stumble backwards in surprise, as he cried out in pain. The boy turned to see both of us. He was frightened beyond comprehension, and completely paralyzed having no idea what to do next, and I didn't blame him. Go, I barked. Now, or you will die if you stay here. Him hearing me speak, it snapped him out of his trance. He screamed for his peers and ran back into the clearing, where their campsite had been set up. What the hell was that? One of the females said before letting out a blood-curdling screech. We gotta go. Get to the truck now. Another chimed in just as frightened as the rest. 
They quickly began to run off and retreat, now leaving me alone with the other cryptid. You dare step foot into my territory and allow my prey to escape. It snarled at me in a loud, hissing fashion. Still clutching the limb, I had sliced off with my claws. I buried my teeth, preparing myself for the inevitable battle. The humans are to be left alone. Leave them be, I growled. Their flesh is far too delicate and delectable to be left alone. They taste magnificent. You will die for what you've done. The entity reached out again with another one of those hairy, deformed legs. This time, much faster and more aggressive than it had done with the boy. The leg had moved swifter than what I had originally predicted. I attempted to slash it off like I had done the other, but I missed. Causing the leg to pierce me just below my left shoulder. I howled as I felt it sink into my skin. Blood, just as blue as my complexion, leaked out from the wound. As I wrapped one hand around the leg and tried to pull it out of my flesh, only for the creature to force it in deeper as he boasted. Such a weak one, aren't you? I expected much more. You are just as frail as the two-legged ones. It must be crushing to know your passionate efforts to protect them are so hopelessly futile. You will die like any mortal man. I felt rage begin to boil within me. I tilted my head up at the thing, glaring deeply into its soul to let him know I wouldn't be put down this easily. Even though it was painful, I shifted my body around the leg that had been currently impaling me, and I latched my jaws onto it, biting down hard and not letting go. The entity screamed once again, extending out more of its legs to attack me. I swatted them away with my claws as I thrashed and snapped my jaws repeatedly on the one of my mouth, repeatedly biting over and over until I had finally dismembered him. Once it had been disconnected, I grabbed what was still left of the first one on my shoulder and pulled it out while forcefully gritting my teeth and growling at the ground below me. It stung like crazy, but I didn't have time to moan about it. In a bipedal stance, I took a couple of steps back. The cryptid and I now both being wounded meant that we were going to do anything we could to kill the other one and walk out of this alive. Perhaps you are stronger than what I had previously predicted. He laughed tauntingly. I quickly latched onto one of the trees next to me, only crawling halfway up before leaping to the one next to it, repeating the process over and over until I got closer to him. He tried and failed multiple times to grab me as I was moving from tree to tree, going far too quick for his legs to reach me. I could hear him snarling under his breath, cursing himself for not being able to stop my repetitive jumping and leaping. Once I had gotten onto the tree closest to him, the cryptid backed up, clearly understanding my intentions. He reached out with one of those legs one last time, to which I countered a last second by snapping a large branch off the tree and holding it in front of me, deflecting his limb. I then threw the branch at the body of the creature, hitting him directly in the middle of his body and causing him to fall backward. I seized the opportunity by jumping from the tree and pouncing on him, quickly holding him down while I swiped my claws at his throat for the final and very much fatal attack. His screams were a hissing gurgle, 
Despite the fact he didn't even seem to have any sort of blood or liquid, that would indicate signs of a wound. But I could tell these were his last few breaths. Why? Why? He pleaded. The arrogance that he had displayed earlier now slowly fading from his demeanor. In only a matter of minutes, his confidence had completely disappeared, now being replaced with pessimistic acceptance. You tried to take their lives, so I took yours. I snapped. They did nothing to earn your wrath. What even are you? He gasped in his last few seconds of life. My name is Braun. I felt his body go limp in the grip of my claws, signaling that he had drawn his last breath and his heart had stopped, if he even had one. The truth was, I didn't care, because I was hungry, hungry to feed once again. I needed to eat. This was a blessing in disguise. My glance behind and to these sides of me, making sure no humans or other cryptids were around to witness my feast. I tore into the creature greedily. I hadn't eaten anything since the previous day, and let me tell you, my appetite was not easily satisfied. I had devoured most of his legs and took a decent chunk of his head. That was the thickest part of him after all. The texture of his flesh was unlike anything I had felt before. He didn't even taste all that great, but I kept at it nonetheless. Luckily, his lack of blood would leave less evidence for the agency to find if they had scouted at this particular area. That was the main thing that I cared about. But to my deeply frustrating surprise, I heard the sudden sound of a twig snap in the distance behind me. It wasn't very far. I got angry with myself internally for not dragging the beast somewhere more secluded before I had started feasting. Whatever had made the sound was close definitely close enough to see what was going on. I stopped consuming my meal and dropped what remained of the creature's body, trying to look around for the source of the noise. At first, I was confused. My vision had been designed to be highly effective in the dark. I would have seen whatever was around me without much trouble, unless it was an entity that possessed the ability to cloak itself. I had run into a few of those back when I was still with the agency. I decided to look slightly lower. Looking straight ahead from my height did slightly limit my line of sight. It only took me a few moments to spot a bipedal silhouette crouching down behind a line of thick bushes. It didn't appear very large, height or width-wise. I cautiously lowered myself onto all fours and walked off to the left to circle around the figure and give myself the advantage. After breaking past the line of bushes and onto the other side, I was able to get a better picture of the creature who had been watching me. It was only a human, a male at that, holding a small rectangular shaped metal object in one of his hands, pointing it directly at me. A cell phone, I thought. I used to hear the soldiers at the agency talk about and use them all the time, but I had never actually seen one up closer in person, but it looked mostly like what I had expected. The closest thing to it I had ever come in contact with was the cameras the agency had used to keep a watch on the premises of our building. The man froze, 
he was clearly terrified at seeing me, even more than the boy from earlier. Not that I could help it, but I wanted to use that to my advantage. I had a plan in mind. I withdrew my claws, allowing them to gleam in the moonlight, which only frightened him further, causing him to involuntarily raise his arms to shield himself. What, what are you? His voice trembled. He backed up slowly, being hasty yet careful with his movements. Leave now, I growled, baring my teeth. I reached out and pointed one of my lengthy fingernails at his cell phone. Drop it, I demanded. Please don't eat me. I mean no harm, I swear, please. He pleaded as he let his cell phone at the ground. I will tear the flesh from your bones if you don't go. Now, I said, retracting my claws to enhance the blob. He finally turned tail and ran. I was pretty sure that I could hear him tearing up as he dashed through the forest, clearly deeply disturbed about our encounter. I crawled over to the cell phone. It was still seemingly turned on. The screen displayed a video, which was something I was previously familiar with, but no expert by any means. Like I said, I had seen some of the guards at the facility operate them, but I had never done it myself. The video depicted me and the other creature that I had killed in order to protect the campers and feed myself. It recorded everything up until I had run up on all fours and stood in front of the man. He was videotaping the whole thing, even as we had fought each other to the death. I knew what needed to be done. I let the cell phone rest in the center of my palm for just a few seconds, right before clamping down and crushing it with brute strength. I opened my hand back up to find it cracked and broken into uh, several pieces. The last thing I needed was the agency getting a hold of that. It was evidence, and it may seem extreme when I say it, but they would surely be able to track down my location if they were to find it. They had been careful now to show me the full extent of their technological power. I didn't want to risk finding out. They already knew that I was in this forest. That video would have been the final nail in the coffin if they saw it. I had planned to get out of here by the end of the night. It wouldn't be long before they would pay off the government officials to close this place down, so they could set up teams to watch the exits and entrances. That is, if they hadn't already. At which point, I'd be completely trapped. The only way to get out would be to fight, and I would for sure have to fight to kill. I didn't want to shed so much blood when I didn't have to. I dug a hole in the ground using my hands, just deep enough to bury the remains of the crushed cell phone. This time, being extra careful to make sure that nothing was watching me. After which I got up and started my journey to get out of here. It took me a few hours to make it to the south end of the forest. The terrain had varied a lot during the journey. The main issue was just making sure I didn't cross any paths with more campers or hikers. I could see past the tree line and out into the highway, a mostly empty highway at that. All I needed to do was be patient and cross at the right time. Every second turned into a minute as I approached it, getting closer little by little. Now, shouted a forceful voice from one behind one of the trees. I quickly stood upon two legs, trying to gauge who had said the phrase. 
only to be met with sounds of multiple guns cocking and being loaded in all directions at me. In all my life, I had never been shot before, and I wasn't sure if bullets were something that could harm me, but I didn't go down the foolish route and take the risk. I simply stood still and got down in a surrendering stance. Men from the agency were completely surrounding me, all geared up with night vision goggles and gas masks, completely armed to the teeth for a fight. They weren't playing around. Gas him. Dr. West wants him alive. One of the squad members proceeded to throw a small canister in front of me. It exploded and released a powerful yellow vapor that swiftly spread itself in the air and seeped into my orifices, causing me to slowly become weaker and lose my strength as the gas filled my lungs. I felt dizzy. Everything around me was spinning, and I collapsed out of my back, unable to fight the gas and stay conscious. The sounds of footsteps and men all shouting a victorious chant were the last things I had heard before blacking out. That and the smell of all their distinct scents. When I had awoken, a bright, almost blinding light pierced my eyes. I winced back from the dramatic shift as I tried to adjust myself accordingly. I was in an all-white room, surrounded by four thick glass walls. I assumed they had been heavily reinforced, but that didn't matter because when I had attempted to move forward to make contact with the glass, I found out that I had been restrained by specially made chains wrapped around my arms, only just about preventing me from touching the glass of the containment area. Subject 16A, it's good to see you once again, said a calm female voice far more welcoming than anything I had ever heard before. I tilted my head downward. On the other side of the glass in front of me stood a middle-aged looking woman. Blonde hair, brown eyes, dressed in a lab coat. Her hair pulled back in an elegant ponytail. My name is Braun. I snapped at her, making no attempt to move or adjust myself with the chains restraining me. Oh, is that what you call yourself now? She replied, letting out a forced chuckle. I guess that is shorter, so why not? I'm Dr. West, but you may as well call me mother. Let me go, I snarled, baring my teeth and ignoring her foolish request. Well, we just got you back. We can't do that just now, can we? I spent millions creating you. I designed you, made you the ultimate cryptid killing machine. We gave you food, shelter, and a place to stay in exchange for your services and obedience. But yet, you betray us. Why is that, Braun? She polished her sentence off, trying to hold off a laugh, clearly amused at the attempts to individualize myself. I want to be free. I like it out there. I shot back, now looking at the floor. Ah, but you see... It's not that simple, Braun. As I said, I created you. Years of research and dedication was put into making your existence a reality. You work for us. You are a part of us. Mother's orders. Dr. West punctuated by letting a manic grin creep up onto her face. This is a prison. I don't want to be here anymore. I have no real mother nor father. 
I am your experiment. You are not my mother. You never will be. I'd rather die than ever let that be the case. Wes stood back when I had finished my tirade, seemingly genuinely shocked by my revelation. I am a puppet to you, nothing but your attack dog. Now let me go, I continued. Dr. West slowly inched closer towards the glass, nearly having her face pressed against it as she kept her arms placed behind her back. You know what you are, she erupted. You're a freak, the subject of every horrendous tale ever told. You are nothing but the fuel of nightmares and the cause of worldwide terror. No one out there will ever accept you, but we do. Those people don't care about you. When I designed you, I did it with the purpose of trading the looks for intelligence. But apparently, I failed at that too. Not only are you hideous, but you are a fool. Something in me snapped. I clenched my claws and felt my blood boil. Before I even registered what I was doing, I charged at the glass. The chain held me back from it by only less than a foot. She jumped back in surprise as I lifted a fingernail and I pointed it at her face. When I get out of here, I hissed, showing as many teeth as possible for dramatic effect. You will be first. West simply smirked once she had regained herself. She lifted her left hand from her back to reveal a small gray colored rectangular device with two red buttons on the front along with an antenna sticking out of the top. We had maintained eye contact as she slowly guided her thumb towards the button on the top. Was that a threat? She asked rhetorically. When she pressed the button, a massive electric shock exploded through my body, causing me to roar and screech within the chamber. They echoed loudly off the walls as I thrashed around, internally begging for the pain to stop. I had felt torment before, but nothing like this. Not even close. We built you to be resistant to a lot, but we needed to give you some sort of Achilles heel. You know, for contingency purposes. There was no emotion left in her voice as she spoke. Her friendly attitude that she had feigned earlier had completely disappeared. Now all I could see was a look of malice and hatred. She truly looked like she was barely containing her unhinged madness. My limbs were twitching after the excruciating shock had concluded. Smoke rose from the surface of my skin as I laid there defenseless, the chains now feeling even tighter around my wrists. It's sad to see such a waste of man hours and resources. She leaned down behind the glass condescendingly. I tried to tell you... Try to convince you what it is you have here, but seeing that you're stubborn, it looks like we'll have to open up that head of yours and make a few adjustments. Maybe I'll even leave you awake during the procedure to teach you a lesson. Dr. West, what are you doing? Said a more masculine voice, accompanied by the sound of rapid footsteps. It stung like crazy, but I turned my head to see whoever had stormed in. Being grateful, they had distracted West long enough for my healing abilities to kick in and to help me recover. But I healed much slower than normal. West was right. The electricity was my weakness. The male human also wore a lab coat, 
seemingly a doctor as well. He raced over to West and attempted to grab the device from her. He's turned, John. He's going to places he shouldn't be going and abandoned the mission site, she shouted, holding out an arm for John to keep his distance. Well, that doesn't mean you shock him, you moron. We need him strong, able to fight. This is only going to make things worse. He needs to be punished, Wes snapped back. He needs to learn he belongs to us and he needs to obey. You know what would happen once he begins to think he's the one in charge. John took a deep breath. I'm not going to ask again, doctor. Give me the remote now. West once again refused, attempting to run away but being grabbed by John as he tried to snag the remote from her. No, stop. Dr. West pleaded. P's too dangerous. Give me the damn remote, West. John yelled as his thumb slipped onto the bottom button and all the chaos of their struggle. Suddenly, the chains wrapped around my arms unlocked and disconnected themselves. The reinforced glass walls of the room lowered down into the floor. I was now free to move around. As fast as possible, I threw the chains off and stood up, still feeling slightly weak from my intense electric shock, but retaining enough strength to fight should I have to resort to doing so. West and John both stopped and dropped the remote inattentively, both turning their heads to look up at me as I towered over them. I could even see John's legs shaking as he sized me up. I could quite literally smell the fear coming off of them. Run! West shouted, turning around and sprinting for the door that led into a brightly lit hallway, clearly having no remorse for leaving John behind with me. Once John's adrenaline kicked in, he too would turn to run, but not before I quickly dashed and leaped across the floor, grabbing him by the shoulder and lifting him up to eye level. He was terrified, shaking, kicking, and screaming, begging for me to let him go. I could tell he was surely close to urinating. I, I'm sorry, I really am. I... I cut him off, luring him back down to the floor before saying, You may go, but West is mine. I told him, giving him a look that told him my statement was non-negotiable. He had seemed more than fine with that proposal. He quickly nodded and ran out of the room, both horrified and grateful that I had chosen to spare his life. The alarm system in the building began to ring. A female voice came over the intercom, endlessly repeating the phrase, Security breach at level 5. All possible agents engage. Heavy footsteps began to ring out through the hall next to the chamber room that I was in. It was a multitude of agents coming my way, all more than likely armed with that same gas they had used to subdue me earlier. I didn't want to risk finding them and getting caught once again. God knows what Dr. West would do to me the second time around, and it would all just be to prove a point. Not a damn thing to do with science. I looked all around the room for a sign of escape, desperate to get out of this nightmare of a room. I was greatly relieved when I looked directly above me and spotted a large air duct cover. I was very tall but skinny enough to fit through it widthwise. I didn't have any other options. It was either this or suffer endless torture at the hands of West. The footsteps were getting closer 
I could hear the voices of the agents as they ran down in formation towards the room. I had to act quickly. I got on all fours, latched myself onto the nearest wall, and crawled up onto the ceiling from there. I scurried across and stopped at the duct, reaching over with one hand to grab and tear off the cover, making sure to bring it with me, not wanting the agents to see it. At least not at first. It would hopefully buy me a few more minutes before they had realized where I had gone. I quickly crawled up inside the vent, hearing the agents enter the room, and cursed violently as they tried to spot me to no avail. I scurried deeper into the tight tunnels, making sure not to scrape my claws against the metal or make any sounds that could be heard over the alarms. I had remembered the layout of the building from all the previous years that I had spent here. The chamber room was new to me though. I had never been in there before. Up until now, I was obedient, and I had followed their orders, but I was sure as hell done doing that. I crawled over to the security room. I had remembered seeing agents always going in there before we had went off to go hunt on a cryptid. I picked up Dr. West's scent coming from it. Looking through the duct cover from an aerial view, I spotted her sitting in a chair with a glass of water in her hand, while two guards stood in front of the door to the room, keeping their assault rifles trained on it. Don't worry, Doc. If he comes in here, we'll blow him away. I sniffed around a little bit more, seeing if I could pick up the sense of anyone else in the room just in case. But all I had gotten was West and the two guards. I prepared myself to attack. I needed to be fast and take the guards out before they could alert any others to my position. Using stealth and precision, I slowly reached my claws outwards and locked them around the air duct cover, gripping it firmly before ever so slowly pulling it off and up into the vent tunnels. You two idiots better make sure he doesn't get through that door, because if he does, I'll run while he tears your organs out. Dr. West shouted angrily at the two guards. They didn't respond as I moved out of the vent and began to cautiously creep along the ceiling in their direction, keeping my movements slow and deliberate. So far, they and West hadn't taken notice of my presence. I made it above the guards and quickly dropped down, swatting the first guard away with a casual backhand. He was sent flying across the room, slamming into a table, and getting knocked unconscious. Stacks of paper scattered as he and the table tipped backward onto the floor. The other guard quickly reached for his radio and tried to call for backup. I cut him off by grabbing him and slamming him headfirst into the wall. He too was now out cold. After they had both been taken care of, I turned my attention to Dr. West. She had already backed up to the far side of the room. The fear was palpable in her expression. Stand down now, she commanded desperately. That's an order, 16A. I stood up raising my claws and showing my teeth as I walked toward her. I will not say it again. My name is Braun, I growled. Get away from me, now, she cried. I ignored her demand, still keeping my purposefully sluggish pace as I closed in on her, wanting her to feel small, insignificant, and weak. 
I should have killed you. I should have let you starve or waste away. Clearly, I've shown far too much mercy. No, I stopped her. It is I who has shown too much mercy. Well, kill me then, you freak. She began to laugh maniacally. Do it. That's what I designed you to do. To kill. So why aren't you doing it? You spared John, the guards. You can't even complete this simple task that you were created to do. The looming threat of her potential death had sent her into a senile state. She was no longer able to mask her deep-rooted insanity. You designed me to kill monsters. I corrected her. Right before drawing my claws back and slashing her throat. She clutched her neck as blood spewed off from her fatal wound. Sounds of gurgling and choking filled the room as she fell to her knees, going wide-eyed in her last agonizing seconds of life. I didn't get any time to gloat over her corpse. More security personnel were already outside the door. Dr. West, is everything okay in there? Came voices from the other side of the door, followed by a forceful banging. Dr. West, please let us know you're okay, or we'll have to force the door open. I knew I didn't have much time. I grabbed Wes's body before scaling the wall and crawling back up into the vent. Back inside the air ducts, I devoured what was left of the sinister doctor, my creator, my sick, twisted, and evil creator, who would threaten me with torture and death for simply wanting more than the restrictions that I was given here. And they called me the monster. I ate quickly. I made sure to pick her bones clean, leaving nothing but her skeleton and hair. This duct would be her final resting place. It's exactly what she deserved. I navigated through the rest of the ducts until I reached the south end of the building. The alert was still going on. Agents were still scrambling and looking for me, as well as at Dr. West now. They wouldn't stop. They wouldn't ever give up. I just know they wouldn't. Especially once they had figured out what I had done to West. The duct that I was in eventually ended and opened up to a decently sized room filled with all sorts of pipes and boilers. I was in the walls of the building. They were dark, slightly damp, filled to the brim with unkept spiderwebs and insect nests. It would be too obvious to leave, at least for now. Especially going and hiding out in White Mountain Forest again. Or any forest in the area for that matter. I know what I was going to do for now. I would stay living within the walls of the facility, right under their noses. Sneaking around the air ducts and feasting on whatever vermin and small creatures that I could get my claws on. It was perfect. While they would be out scrambling to look for me, I would be here, hiding in plain sight just until I could come up with something better. I needed to wait for it all to die down. By this point, I know they will never accept me, love me, or care for me, and I've accepted it. I should have a long time ago. I promise you one thing. I will make it out of here someday soon. I will be back out in the world helping your species battle the dark forces of the universe. Call me a monster all you like, but monsters come in all forms. I am only one example. Men, women, and children can all be monsters. We all have the capability to be cruel, 
merciless and evil. Monsters just don't appear in dark legends and myths. They could be sitting right next to you, living in your home or worse, living in your soul, residing in the very heart and spirit. You used to tell yourself that you are benevolent, 